Good Samaritan, right? So it's here in Luke 10, so we'll talk about that today, among other things as well. So uh, let's read. Um, Luke 10, beginning of verse 1. After these things, <clears throat> after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. That's exciting. (laughs) Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. And greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you, near to you. But whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. (laughs) Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you, that it will be more tolerable in that day, in that day, for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned. Returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather, rejoice because your names are written in the heavens. In heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples. And he said privately, blessed, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And behold, a a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Dun, dun, dun. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
Likewise, a Levite, uh, when, he, uh, um, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, <clears throat> a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went in, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do Likewise. Now it happened as they, as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord do you, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered, and he said to her, Martha, Martha, you, you're worried and, and troubled about many things. One thing is needed. And Mary's chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Well, lots of fun stuff to discuss. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray because uh, as we come to your word, the whole point of it is that we would commune with you, the living God. And it is through uh, the word that you have spoken to the prophets and through your son that we get to see who you are and what you think. Not just then, but now. And so because we are aware that you are always everywhere and therefore also here, we ask that you would speak to us, that you'd reveal more and more about who you are. Father, we praise you for the liberties you've given us in this country. May we continue to pursue them. For all as you allow. Thank you for being kind to us, though we have often squandered liberty to the destruction of many. Lord, we ask <coughs> that you would have mercy and that you teach us to share. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Pray. Um, Lord, that you'd be kind to us. We pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Let's back up to uh, verse 1, Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. This was the second time that Jesus did this kind of thing, right? The first time we saw a couple chapters back, Jesus... Uh, appoints the 12, and then he sends the 12 out into different places, uh, the 12 whom we commonly refer to as the apostles. We see those go out, and we see them doing uh, ministry according to the word of Jesus. Now he's going to send out 70. And I think it's interesting, among other things, to see those two numbers, 12 and then 70. They're, they're also seen in the Old Testament. Uh, we see the 12 with the 12 patriarchs, uh, the 12 um, children of uh, Jacob, of Israel, so we see uh, 12 there, and then we also see 70 people. That's the total number of descendants that went into Egypt. Whenever you get to uh, Exodus chapter 1, the total number of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their family at that time, was, was 70 people, uh, according to Exodus chapter 1. So I think that's interesting. Jesus had the 12 that he sent out, and then he also sent out 70. We also see later on when Moses is appointing uh, uh, judges to help him make decisions for Israel that there are 70 other men selected as uh, judges to help Moses make 
uh, decisions and to judge between the people. So uh, after these things, as we read, the Lord appointed these seventies, and he sent them two by two before his face in every city. This is a very particular mission. He's sending them out throughout all of these different cities. And one of the things that this part of the story reminds me of is that what we have in the record here is not a full biography of every single thing that happened in and around the life of Jesus. In fact, later when we get to John's uh, writing, we'll find that that's exactly what John said. John says multitudes of books could be written of the things that Jesus uh, did and said. Uh, But these things were written so that you would believe and in believing that you would have eternal life. Uh, John's very specific about that in his gospel. So uh, this particular story reminds me that there are lots of things that we just don't know about uh, that, uh, that are referred to uh, in various places. And, of course, because there's some things that we don't know about, there are some things we just, uh, again, we can't know. So he sends these out two by two, though. Uh, I like this idea of that accountability where there are two people that are going uh, together um, it's easy if you're just by yourself. It's really easy to either get discouraged or to get like in a place where you are. Um, if something difficult happens, like I said, to be discouraged or sometimes just to shirk your responsibilities because you don't have another person to help hold you accountable, right? So this is one of the things I think that's really helpful and beneficial about working together in ministry and serving the Lord together. So I like that he sent them out two by two, um, but he did send them where he himself was about to go. We've already read that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's one of the reasons why one of the villages of the Samaritans said, we don't want you to come here, because the Samaritans and the Jews had this uh, strong tension between them. And so one of the groups of the Samaritans was like, we don't want you to come to our town because you're on your way to Jerusalem, and like Samaritans and Jews don't get along. And so we read last week the response of, of uh, James and John. They're like, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them, right? Like, what are you guys talking about? You know, But that's what they, they that was their response because they were frustrated and angry at the people in this particular village. Jesus is like, you don't, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Like, what are you trying to do? The Son of Man has come uh, to save, not to destroy. So uh, anyhow, um, as they're making their way there, Jesus is sending out these groups of disciples into various towns because he's going to all of these towns as he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is a big part of his ministry where uh, all of these miracles and things are happening, not only at Jesus' hands, but even the hands of his uh, disciples. Not just the 12, but even these 70. They're given a particular authority as well. One of the things that I think I want to caution us against is reading this and thinking, this is true about every single Christian. Remember, this is a particular thing happening at this time in the life and ministry of Jesus, okay? Jesus gave them a particular authority. It doesn't mean that he's given that same authority to everyone. In fact, when we get to the book of Acts, many of these things start to slow down dramatically when we get to the book of Acts. Acts takes place over a long period of time, and so we do have some references to various miracles, but uh, not nearly the things that are being shown to the nation of Israel as Jesus is presenting himself to them as their Messiah and showing them what the kingdom of heaven is like. Right? There's a particular purpose to what he's doing here. One that the majority of them will eventually reject uh, when they cry out in Jerusalem, we will not have this man rule over us. That sort of is the, the culmination of this. He's presenting all of this in fulfillment of the things that have been written by the prophets But the majority of the people reject his authority. They reject uh, believing in him, while some, of course, a small group do believe him. And that becomes uh, the church, and that church then spreads from there. So, um, Verse 2 says this. Then he said to them, this is to the 70, that he's sending out into these different towns and and, uh, cities and places. He said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, I've often wondered about this. This is one of those verses that sometimes we use as a general statement about all the time. Sometimes we talk about Christian ministry and service. Sometimes we hear this phrase that uh, that the harvest is great, the laborers are few, therefore pray the Lord Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest because we're trying to get you to enlist yourself into ministry. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) you should be a laborer, you know. And that's kind of what happens here. Jesus says, pray that, that this will happen, and then he sends them out. (laughs) <laughs> he sends them out, the very ones praying about that particular thing. Obviously, we do see that here, but um, uh, sometimes I think we make assumptions about particular things that um, that aren't necessarily true. Like, uh, sometimes we might assume that uh, there is some particular thing. Like, I, I grew up in a setting where, where it's like people wanted to plan a revival 
uh, what we call a revival. Um, and, and it would be like a week-long service of things, you know. And it just seemed so manufactured. I don't know how it's, like what other word to, to use to describe it. Uh, it seemed very frequently very manufactured uh, of like, well, we're trying to make something happen. And, and um, in, anyway, so I step back from this sometimes and I say, Lord, is the hardest always great? Remember, uh, it's important for us as we read the scriptures that we keep it all in context, in the context in which it's written. There's a particular thing that, uh, that God is doing. And in one sense, uh, certainly the harvest is great in that there are many people everywhere, right, who need to hear the great news of Jesus and of his, his good kingdom. <clears throat> and certainly it seems frequently the laborers are few. <laughs> But I think if we go from a place where we think that that phrase, the harvest truly is great, if we take that phrase to mean that God is going to do some particular huge salvation ministry thing in one particular setting, like in yours, I just want to be careful about that stuff, or in mine. It's possible that he will. (laughs) He's done it, right? Um, The thing I want to, I guess, caution us against is making assumptions about particular things that may not necessarily be what the Lord is saying at a particular time. I think that we ought to be cautious as we read the scriptures uh, together and as we pursue the Lord. Uh, Certainly there are many people who we want to hear, many people who need to hear the great news of Jesus, the good news of his kingdom. Um, um, But is is saying that a guarantee that you or I going out and sharing the, the good news, the message of the good news or the gospel of Jesus, is that a guarantee that people will hear, that many people will hear and believe that? I don't think it's a guarantee of that. <clears throat> Certainly sometimes it does happen. <laughs> and we praise the Lord for that. Uh, but, uh, uh, but it isn't always. Uh, it isn't always the case. Um, that being said, there's never a shortage of work. <laughs> Let me be clear. <laughs> there's, there's always service that we can do to, to help uh, the work of ministry, right? There, there's always something that we can do to be involved in, in the work of, of Jesus' church. The question for many of us is, how can I be involved in that? What can I do? Uh, we can look at the uh, ways that God has gifted us individually, not only naturally, but, but spiritually gifted us and use those giftings in ways that honor and bless his church as God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, right? So that we would be involved in serving one another and in serving our community for the name of Jesus. Because while 5,000 people may not be saved in one event, maybe they will, maybe they won't, doesn't matter. Uh, The fact of the matter is I can be involved in serving the lives of the people around me, even if it's five or ten. But sometimes that ministry isn't as glamorous or maybe I should say as glorious looking as the, the 5,000, right? Uh, there's a lot less money involved. <laughs> there's a lot less uh, prestige maybe, um, but equally valid, uh, maybe even uh, more so because of the lack of associated glory uh, related to it. I'll let the Lord judge that. Obviously, that would that involves our hearts, and I can't make that judgment <laughs> about where our hearts are as we serve the Lord. Uh, only He can do that. So, He's sending them out. Um, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way, He said. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. That's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> what? Are, like, what? Are the, I send you out as lambs among wolves. This is just a straight up warning about the reality of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Lambs among wolves. As you can hopefully deduce, wolves like lambs. They love them. I mean, they like to eat them. Right? So, like, that's their thing, right? This is how Jesus describes the 70 as he's saying, You guys are like wonderful lambs. And they're maybe like, oh, Yes, and you are our shepherd. And he's like, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. <laughs> like, oh, 
I've tried to warn you about a, a particular way of viewing following Jesus that seems inconsistent with, with the scriptures. Uh, sort of the, um, the Joel osteen uh, your best life now um, picture of what it means to follow Jesus that uh, is really foreign to the scriptures. If we examine the lives of these early followers of Jesus, their lives were, were, were full of suffering, of pain, of, of turmoil, and, and not just the general sufferings of the world that you and I and all of us endure, but specific sufferings related to telling people that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were particularly persecuted because they kept on saying this, he is risen from the dead, and it made people mad. It made people lose their minds. Because if it was true, it changed everything. And if it was a lie, they were deceiving people. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag. This is similar to what he said to the twelve earlier. But this is uh, these statements are related to. It seems to me related to Jesus saying, "I want you to be dependent on the Father to provide for you. I want you to depend on God." So carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Greet no one along the road. In other words, you have a particular purpose, a, a mission that you're uh, going on. You need to get to it. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. This is, if you're familiar with Hebrew culture, this is an incredibly Hebrew way to speak. Shalom be on you. Peace be on you. Um, Shalom is a very common Hebrew greeting. And so Jesus is using that very thing, saying, Shalom, let, let my peace be on you. Shalom be on you. But if not, <laughs> let it return to you, he says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they get, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. If you're involved in, in serving your ministry, and by the way, this becomes something that Paul later on uses, that particular phrase, the laborer is worthy of his wages, a particular phrase that Paul uses about those serving in ministry, um, in, in um, the ministry of the word, and among other things. So, um, the whole point of this, though, of that particular section, is Jesus saying, I don't want you to carry all this extra stuff with you. I'm sending you on a mission, and I want you to depend on God to provide for you. Um, that certainly is a lesson I think all of us ought to learn, <laughs> no matter what mission we're on. You can trust the Lord. Just like he provided for them, how he took care of them, and this thing he had called them to, so too. He provides the things that you need, not always the things that I want. No, I want lots of stuff, you guys. <laughs> I just want lots of stuff sometimes. <laughs> and he hasn't promised to give me all the things that I want. But he does provide the things that I need. Until the moment I don't need them anymore. Right? I mean, if God's ready to kill me, then I don't need any food anymore. <laughs> there are certain things I don't need anymore if, uh, if it's my time. So even in that, I, I can trust the Lord. Or rather... I want to learn to. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So this is like if somebody receives you into their city or town, say that just do ministry and then serve the people, meet their needs, very practical needs, and say the kingdom of God has come near you. I think that's that's wonderful. And something obviously that... Uh, I think about this idea, we were just talking about it last night, this idea of like, what does it look like for a church to be represented in a city? Like, what's our city's view or our community's view of us as a church? And obviously, it's nothing right now, right? <laughs> Nobody knows anything about who we are, right? <laughs> I get it, right? But like, but like, as we continue to serve the Lord in our city, how do people view uh, us as a, as a group of people serving the Lord together? What does that look like? How do we present ourselves uh, to the community? And so I thought about it, and the more I think about it, the more I think, wouldn't it be wonderful for the, the way that people see us in the community, outside of the church, the way that people see our fellowship is as one that gives, and one that serves, and one that helps provide for people's physical needs, and one, one that helps provide training and equipment, and whatever it is that, that our community needs, known for our community to grow in our community to be better. And because we're followers of Jesus, that's always coupled with the great news of God's kingdom. We can say the kingdom of God has come near you. 
as we then also provide for people's physical, material needs, right? Because sometimes um, you and I might be concerned about somebody's soul while they're concerned about feeding their children, right? And, and I think that if we can help meet that need and then also share with them the great news of God's kingdom, right? I think that's helpful and good, right? It's weird to me, I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's odd to me to think of those two, of, of making that a dichotomy, of separating the idea of caring for the whole person. Seems like a strange way for us to, um, to handle things. Um, whereas sometimes the view of churches in a community is that they're always trying to take something from the community or they're always trying to get something from it. We've even considered things like this, like what does it look like um, for us as a church to not pay taxes that go to help our community. We, we, we can, that's something I think about, right? Like, do, do we, should we use the opportunity that we have to be tax exempt from things like local and state sales taxes? We can do that, but we can also pay that as a group, <laughs> and that money then goes to help support our community, right? Um, in, in the various things that, the, that our community does, right? Uh, think about the pieces of land that are owned throughout the city that are owned by churches and all of those land, all of that land being exempt from the uh, local taxes. Like that's a lot of money that like our fire department isn't getting, <laughs> right? A lot of money that our, um, uh, like our school system isn't getting because of that, because that's what our, our uh, property taxes go to among other things, right? So uh, while some people m- maybe don't consider it, it's just something I think we ought to be able to say, what does this look like to our community? What would this mean to somebody who's not following Jesus? Right? Because, because our goal is not only to build disciples, it's also to reach more people, right? To make them, if, if, they, uh, if they hear the great news, for them to be disciples of Jesus, to be following him. So if nothing else, um, it's something that I think that uh, we ought to say, um, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus? What is, what is the, the way that our, our community is presented to our broader community in the area? What does that look like? Um, so, uh, if nothing else, again, I just want to say, um, God give us wisdom <laughs> and, and uh, opportunities to to share, to share. Um, so, moving on, we continue with Jesus' instructions to the seventy. Um, So he tells them if they're received to say the kingdom of God has come near to you. But verse 10, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets, into its streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. He told the 12 earlier to shake off the dust from their feet whenever they left the city. This is something that I believe we mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses, I think still do at times if they come to your door and you reject their message. Sometimes when they leave your property, they'll shake their feet off as they're leaving because of this particular passage and the one uh, dealing with the 12 that Jesus told them to shake the dust off of their feet. Now this was, again, this was a practice that many of the um, religious Jews already did whenever they passed through land that didn't belong to Israel. Whether it was through Samaria or whether it was through Gentile lands, if they had to go through the land, they tried not to, but if they had to go through some other land for whatever reason, when they left that land, they would shake the dust off their feet, basically to say, like, we don't want your dust over in Israel, right? It's, uh, it's not very nice, right, uh, in, in that sense, right? Jesus is using this uh, thing that was already being practiced as a way uh, to say something to, because now it's not Jewish people doing this in land that is non-Jewish, but now it is Jewish people doing this in Jewish cities and towns. Do you get that this would catch their attention? That's the point. They'd be like, wait a minute, <laughs> why are you guys shaking the dust off your feet? Like, we're Jews, right? Right? Because part of the belief system of many of the Jews was that it was good enough for them. Their relationship to God was good enough because they were descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that made them good enough. Right? But that's not how you enter the kingdom of the heavens. And Jesus came uh, to reveal that fact, among other things. uh, That they weren't grandfathered in, (laughs) in that sense, right? In that uh, biological sense. But they're being in the place of, of God's blessing was rooted in their faith in him as the Messiah. So he uses this illustration uh, that was already being done for uh, when Jews pass through non-Jewish land 
but now they're going to do it even when they leave a Jewish city. They're going to do it. And all, the Jews who see that then uh, would hopefully be aware of that. I think that's the idea here. They would, they would get their attention. So he continues. That they're even in that case are to say, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Same thing. Whether they receive them or not, they're to bring the same message. Kingdom of God has come near you. <laughs> so this is the way Jesus is presenting himself and his ministry to Israel as a whole. Kingdom of God is near. Woe to you, uh, or sorry, verse twelve. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Me, that no good, right? Sodom. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, hopefully you might remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how that uh, fire and brimstone is the description of uh, what rained down in God's judgment against those twin cities there and um, how Lot was pulled out and how Mrs. Lot uh, I don't know her name (laughs) how Mrs. Lot turned around and uh, was turned into a pillar of salt exactly what that looks like I don't know (laughs) Um, it will be more tolerable in that day that's a specific day, a particular one. It harkens to the idea that one day everyone must give an account of, of who they are in their lives. That day, the judgment day. I say to you that it will be more, tol- more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city, for the city that rejects the ministry of Jesus. Yee! <laughs> who says to the 70s, nope, the 70 people as they're going out, nope, nope, don't want, don't want this. Woe to you, he says, Koratzin. Stop right there. There's no record that, that I have found anywhere in the New Testament of any ministry Jesus or anybody else ever did in Koratzin. This is a reminder that there are lots of things that happen that we just don't have records of, right? Uh, the, the way that the gospel records are written is not to provide a full um, biography of every single event and every single thing that Jesus said or did. They are written uh, to uh, remind us of particular things. Um, so I think it's important to remember that. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. I, why does he say Capernaum is exalted to heaven? That was sort of the home base of Jesus' ministry. That's where Jesus and his disciples hung out most. In the northern part of Israel, Capernaum sits uh, just off the Sea of Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee area. And that's where Jesus' ministry was primarily rooted as he traveled around Israel uh, for about three and a half years. That was the total amount of time from the time of John's baptism to the time of the crucifixion and a little bit after that. And resurrection. Um, <clears throat> and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to to Hades. <laughs> to Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. <laughs> he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If we read through the scriptures, you know, there's this weird thing. It's weird to me. I don't know, maybe it's not weird to you guys. It's weird to me. It's a weird thing. I hear some people talk about Jesus or talk about the scriptures who... um, sometimes don't ever want to talk about judgment and I just don't, I don't understand I don't get how somebody can listen to the words of Jesus and think that there's not going to be an account and I suppose it's really rooted in the fact that many people, though they might say they're hearing the words of Jesus aren't actually reading, they aren't actually listening to the words of Jesus even you and I who follow Jesus even we, we frequently neglect to pick up our Bibles and to read them (laughs) Certainly others do as well. Jesus 
uh, reminds them of the authority that they have in this mission. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. They reject the Father by rejecting Jesus. And they reject Jesus by rejecting the message brought by the 70. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I can't imagine what this is like. They were to go out and to do ministry and heal people, but they even were able to cast out demons. They're like, Lord, even the demons, they come back full of joy. And they're like, even the, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus' response is this. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> I feel like that's not really the response you want to have. You're like, yeah, Lord, it's amazing. It's so cool. Even the demons had to flee. when we. T- it's so wonderful. And he's like, I saw Satan fall like lightning. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> well, uh, oh, well, all right. Okay, so, so here's what we see in that statement. One is certainly an example of the, the authority of God over Satan, right? I saw Satan fall, fall um, like lightning, right? But the other maybe is a warning against pride. If even Satan, that exalted angel, fell like lightning. And that's the thing he's about to warn them against. Don't don't be all big (laughs) about the demons being subject to you. There's something else you should be grateful for. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold... I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Oh, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous place to read, particularly in light of the idea of keeping Scripture in its context, right? Because we have to ask the question, does this apply to every believer always? The same with the authority to heal and the authority to cast out demons. Do those things apply to every believer always? My suggestion to you is that it seems that they do not. In this particular setting, Jesus had given them a particular uh, place of authority. And they were to use it. But even in that, Jesus gives them this warning. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. All of that stuff, all of those things that I just mentioned to you. Um, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Don't rejoice in this. It's one of the things for me. Whenever people come up and start saying, look at all this authority Jesus has given me to do whatever it is. If it's healing ministry, if it's um, exorcism type of ministry or some other form of ministry, one of the things I always try to do is I examine those things to discern um, them uh, is to see what it is that they're rejoicing in Jesus said don't rejoice in that stuff because the kingdom of the the heavens is bigger than, than all of those temporary little things nevertheless don't rejoice in this the spirits are subject to you and yet sometimes I grew up in a Pentecostal church Sometimes it seems like that's the thing that people are really like. The spirits are subject to us, you know. The demons are subject to us, you know. We can command them to to do this or do that. I would say, let's be cautious and hear the words of Jesus. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. By the way, that's a bigger deal than the demons being subject to you. <laughs> the fact that God could write your name in his heavens, <laughs> that's, that is way bigger. <clears throat> the demons are always subject to the Father. There is no great cosmic battle between good and evil, and maybe good will triumph, and maybe evil. There's no yin and yang as we see in, in many Eastern religious systems, not, not in the context of the scriptures. There is God who sits alone as Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal and perfect. And there is no other like Him. 
He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, in whatever way he wants, because nobody can tell him otherwise. He's that transcendent above everything. And he has chosen to be imminently close to us, to be present with us. That's why Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. May God help us to wrap our minds around (laughs) both of those things. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. If you're feeling down today, rejoice. If you believe the great news of Jesus, rejoice because your name is written in heaven. The journey there may be arduous. (laughs) It may be filled with toil and strife and trouble. Your name is written in heaven because of the blood of Jesus, because of what he has done for you. That's the good news. That's the great news of the gospel, that he has done it all. He has done the work. He has purchased us. And we rest in that reality. And that's why we always have access to the Father, because it's in this grace that we stand, as Paul teaches us. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. He continues... He rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and and revealed them to babes. Not like hot girls, not like that kind of babes, like (laughs) babies. I always think of the Abraham Lincoln thing. I don't know why. Uh, My brain's messed up, that's why. (laughs) She were president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. <laughs> Why does it seem good in your sight? <laughs> um, you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. These statements remind us of the authority both of the Father and of the Son, and of their unity together, that the Father and the Son are one. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. We cannot divorce this thing called ministry or, or the church or um, serving our community or presenting the great news of Jesus. I think that it makes no sense for us to divorce it from the fact that we work together with the will of God, that it's God who has to open the eyes and the hearts and the minds of people to see. And in fact, he does that. I think it's good for us to pray that he does that, (laughs) to ask him to do that very thing. Verse 23 says this. He turned to his disciples. Now he says this to them privately. He turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings, I think of King David, imagine King David would love to see the day of Jesus. <laughs> Among others. But, uh, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Uh, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And you and I, who live some 2,000 years later, have the privilege of seeing and hearing these things as they have been recorded for us. And not just those things. But as we have eyes to see and as we have ears to hear we can become aware of the things God is doing now. We can see those things. In a world where um, many people blame things on luck or happenstance, chance, if there is a supreme God over all things, then I can be fully assured that he is in fact in control of all those things. In fact, King Solomon would say it this way. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon would say, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
the lot. Like, think of the idea of sort of like rolling, rolling dice or drawing straws, right? It, it's a game of chance playing lots. And Solomon uses that as an illustration to say that God is in control even of whatever you and I think of as chance. God is still in control. And so the wisdom for us then is to say because he is in control, how then ought I to respond to the events that are happening in my life and around me? I know that God's desire for me is that I learn humility and that I learn endurance and patience. I know that because God's revealed that to me. I want to walk in his love. I want the fruit of God's spirit to be produced in my life. So God is using all of these other things, all of these other circumstances uh, to make that happen, to produce those things in my life. The question is, am I yielding to that? Or am I fighting against it in the circumstances that God allows to happen in my life? That's hard. That's hard when, you, when you're holding, you know, your little tiny baby that, that was too small to, to, to survive. Uh, outside the womb, that's hard. But I go from those places and I say, Lord, 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 teach me. Don't let any of this be in vain. And my confidence is that it is not. Because he has promised that you and I know that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, and nothing can separate us from his love. And it's with that confidence that we march on in a world full of disaster. (laughs) If you're expecting the world not to be full of disaster, you need a different world than the one we're in, because the one we're in is full of disaster, not just for you or for, for, not just for other people, but for you and I too, right? And following Jesus doesn't divorce us from that reality We live in a world that is fallen. And Jesus has come to redeem, to buy back, to purchase. To present to the world his kingdom that is better than everything else that we have known. In fact, it somehow is the thing that so many of us long for inside. Even people who don't believe long for for unity. They long for peace. They long for these things that, that in my mind... Don't even make any sense to want that stuff because you've never even known it in reality. It just hasn't ever existed. But somehow we still want these things that are really figments of our imagination and we want them for everyone around the world. And Jesus has promised a kingdom of peace. <clears throat> oh, I want to be at work doing the things, uh, whatever it is that I can, in this short little blip of time uh, I can't believe I'm almost 40. Short little blip of time called my life. <sighs> Your life is a vapor. And something I need to remember. It's easy for me to waste my time. Verse 25 says this. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Um, This lawyer would be an expert in Jewish law, right? That's the idea of a lawyer here. We're not talking about the idea of separation of church and state and of a separate legal system from the religious system, but those two were wrapped up together in Israel, as they they were in many ancient cultures, but they were also such in Israel. So this lawyer would be uh, one who was uh, working uh, in understanding and interpreting the law, an expert in Moses' law, in the Torah. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teach, that was his nickname for him. <laughs> what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. What do I need to do to live forever? We're all searching for the fountain of youth. Right? <laughs> it's been a perpetual historical search. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, and he said to him, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? I love this because Jesus puts the question back on him. He's like, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus is like, what do you think the law says? What do you think? So he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. 
and your neighbor as yourself. That's a condensed version of you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? One of these, the first part is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The second part is from Leviticus chapter 19. Both of those in Torah, both of those in Moses' law. And they are the two things that in another place Jesus used to summarize all of the 613 commands uh, in the law of Moses. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of God's law and his prophets. The guy's not wrong. In fact, he's so right on. That's so true. He answered me, said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Jesus responds. And he said to him, You answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. That was always the promise of Torah. The covenant, the agreement God made with Israel at Mount Sinai is if you do these things, you will live. And Israel said, as a nation, we will do them. God had already told them through Moses that they would fail. But that was the agreement that was made. And that's why later on when we get to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, the Lord says through Jeremiah, uh, the day is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant, a new agreement with the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers at Mount Sinai. My covenant which they broke even though I was a husband to them. But in this new covenant, he says, Nobody's going to go to somebody else who's in the new covenant and say, know the Lord, because you'll all know him from the least of you to the greatest of you. And your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. See, this new covenant in Jesus, remember the night he was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of what? Of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins of many. Right? Jesus is ushering in this new agreement in his blood that's not like this other agreement that said, if you do these things, you'll live. Is Jesus saying that you can get into God's kingdom by obeying commands? Yes. Problem is, we've already failed. (laughs) You can't keep the commands. That's the problem. This guy knows that he hasn't kept the commands. He can identify them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, good, you answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. And listen to the guy's response. We separate this for some reason. I don't know why those two parts are separated. Here's the guy's response. Wanting to justify himself. Stop. Why would he want to justify himself? Hmm? Why? Because he didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he didn't love his neighbor as himself. And so he was trying to justify his behavior to say, I'm really okay. He wasn't okay. (laughs) This is why Paul would say in the book of Romans that the law is given to make sin sinier. I just made that word up. Sinier, yes. (laughs) It's to make sin uh, look, look even more terrible. It's because when you know what is right and wrong and then you still choose to disobey because the point is that God's kindness demonstrated to you in the offering of Jesus on your behalf would be elevated all the more when we see that we don't deserve it. But he's loved us anyways. He has loved you. Even when you didn't want to follow him, how much more ought you and I to be confident of his continual care toward us, his children who've been adopted into his family by the blood of Jesus, not not because of our ability to do any good works, but because of Jesus accomplishing them for us. This is the place of rest that God has promised. The place that I want for you and I to be able to live. He, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. I can treat that other guy down the road or in that other country like a jerk because he's not really my neighbor. My neighbor lives next door, right? Right? So if the command is love your neighbor as yourself, it's very pertinent for you to know who your neighbor is, right? Because then you can love that guy and hate everybody else and still keep the command, right? Because the command is love your neighbor. How then do we define who our neighbor is? That's what Jesus 
addresses here in this story, sometimes called the parable of the Good Samaritan. A couple of things I want to mention to you. Jesus never says this is a parable. Maybe this actually happened. He says, he just begins to tell the story. He never says it's a parable. Um, Anyways, verse 30. Jesus answered and said, a certain man, which is, by the way, one of the ways Jesus does refer to particular stories at times. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. It's a hard road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, a difficult one, and thieves overtook this man who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Nice bunch of thieves there. Now, uh, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. A priest would be um, a descendant of Aaron, specifically, not just a Levite, but a descendant of the family of Aaron. Those were the priests. The Levites were the broader family that Aaron was a part of. And all of the Levites served with the priests. Okay? Uh, but the first one who comes by is a priest. A certain priest came down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He's like, whoa, there's a dude like naked and half dead over there. I'm going to walk over on this side, right? I'm going to go to the other side of the road, right? Likewise, a Levite. When he arrived at the place, as I mentioned to you, the Levites were the tribe of Israel given to the descendants of Aaron to serve with them. The descendants of Aaron are the priests. The Levites served with the priests do all of the other work related to the tabernacle and then later the temple, okay? So this would still be seen as a maybe, quote-unquote, religious type of person, as the priest himself uh, would have been seen as well. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. He's like, nope, not me. He goes around the other side. But a certain Samaritan, stop please, stop right there, a certain Samaritan. Remember what happened with the Samaritans recently in our stories? Remember how one group of Samaritans didn't want Jesus and the disciples to come to his town? And James and John are like, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them, right? <laughs> Those Samaritans. Jesus is using this, um, uh, what would, would have been seen as, um, by many Jews, they were seen, as, the Samaritans were seen as sort of half-breeds who came back from the captivity uh, with mixed marriages and families with those who had been their captors. And they were despised by many of the Jews for that very reason. And they settled in sort of the middle, central part of Israel, with the Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and then Judea down in the bottom part, bottom part of Israel. <clears throat> but a certain Samaritan. <laughs> and so I think uh, for us, in our context, we think, what would be an appropriate um, other, despised other in our context? Would we say a certain Iranian? What, what group might you or I think of? Fill in the blank. Okay. This was a despised group of people to the Jews, and this is who Jesus used as the illustration. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That really is the key thing right there. That's kind of the top and the bottom of it. He saw the guy. And he had compassion. And I think in a lot of our social anxieties and frustrations with people and people groups, if we would begin to see people as people and just have compassion on them instead of defining people in whatever groups you and I want to put them into and then bash that group instead of seeing people as people and having compassion, I think that we would have much better opportunities for the gospel and better relationships. He had compassion on him. Among other things, I think it's one of the biggest things that's lacking is that we just don't love people who aren't like us. (laughs) And that is wicked. It's just evil. It's not the way of Jesus. In fact, he told us to love even our enemies. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he even stayed there and took care of him that day. And then the next day he left. 
On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. Jesus used a denarius as an illustration uh, in, in some of his stories of, about a day's wage. So if you want to think of the amount of money here, we're talking about a day's wage. What is an average day's wage of work, right? So he takes two denarii and leaves them. Um, he took out two denarii, I gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend, even if it costs more than this, uh, in order for this guy to get better, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Before we read the uh, guy's response, before we read this lawyer's response, I think that uh, I want to make sure that you're getting this view, this idea here that um, Jesus <coughs> flips the question on its head. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, And the question the guy asked is, well, then who then is my neighbor so that I can love that person? And the idea, therefore, is that I can exclude everyone else. Right? So Jesus really flips that whole question, that whole line of thinking. He flips it around and says, not don't try and figure out who your neighbor is. You be neighborly. Be, you be the good neighbor. He flips the entire line of thinking on its head. Don't try and look at one group or this group or this other thing and say, well, is that my neighbor? Is this not my neighbor? That would have been their way of thinking. And it is still the way of thinking among many. But the real question is, as Jesus presents it to us, who is being neighborly? Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the answer is obvious, right? It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. It was the Samaritan. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And have mercy on him. <laughs> It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But faith without works is dead. If somebody comes to you naked and destitute of daily food, and you say to them, be warmed and filled, go in peace, what benefit have you given to them? And thus, faith without works is dead. Now it happened. Verse 38. Last little clip here. We'll be done. It happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. This is the village of Bethany. Frequently when Jesus travels down to the southern part of Israel around Jerusalem, he stays in Bethany, which is only a couple miles from Jerusalem. And they travel to Jerusalem and they go back to Bethany. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. If you're imagining Israel and Jerusalem, in your mind, you can see this valley on the east side called the Kidron Valley, where the brook Kidron used to go through it. It's been dried up for many years. Uh, but there's a valley there, and then it goes up another hillside to the Mount of Olives, and the other side of the Mount of Olives is where the villages of Bethany, uh, uh, Bethany and Bethphage are. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who was their brother, that's where Lazarus lived uh, with them. So a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. I just, if you're wondering about, I read several commentaries and have over the years about how to understand what's happening here, and some have been like, you know, Martha's doing the wrong thing, and, and everything's wrong, and others are like, no, Martha's doing the right thing, but just in the wrong time, and I don't know. Um, I don't really care to answer any of that. But I do want to say that I think that um, the, the scripture itself, I think, tells us what the real issue is when he uses the word distracted. Mary is sitting as Jesus is teaching, hearing his word. And Martha's just distracted with a bunch of stuff. And Jesus, it seems his response to her is, keep it simple. That way you too can be hearing the word. I marvel at how often I neglect this reality by making many more things in my life much more difficult than they need to be and then neglecting time in the Word of God. Because I'm just busy with all sorts of stuff that's distracting me. 
Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now she's accusing Jesus of not caring about her. Yikes, bro. <laughs> right? <sighs> Though, I think if I'm honest, I can say that um, maybe without saying it, I've thought similar things. Lord, don't you care about what I'm going through? Do you not care? She now gives Jesus some instructions. Lord, you need to do what I'm telling you to do. Therefore, tell her to help me. This is a weird way to pray, you know? (laughs) Lord, you don't really care about me, do you? Do this. Uh, but that's what she's saying to Jesus. So Jesus answers and he says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed. Martha's chosen that good part which will not be taken over. So, without, without complicating the simplicity of the text, I hope that you'll hear the words of Jesus when he says one thing is needed. Mary's chosen that good part. Sometimes we can get so clogged up and busy about many things because we are worried and we're driven by our anxieties. Jesus would say to us, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's hard for me to hear sometimes. I have a full-time job. I have four children. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out this stuff. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. That is his promise to us. And I pray to God that it would be true for us this morning. And not just this morning, but um, as we continue to follow Jesus together, God help us to keep it simple. <laughs> as, as much as is possible, right? <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your patient love toward us. Lord, I want you to have your way in my life and in in our lives. And I'm aware that that doesn't always look like the things that I think it's going to look like. But I rest in the fact that you've said that you love me, that you love us. I want to rest more in that. Thank you for pouring out your love in our hearts, Father. Thank you for giving us the confidence to know that all things, in fact, do work together for good to those who love you. Lord, we, we trust that you're able to work in our lives, in the lives of the people around us. And so we ask for wisdom and grace as we... Um, as we... As we uh, <laughs> As we spend time um, pursuing you, Lord. And thank you for our little babies, too. (laughs) What a joy they are to us. (laughs) And often a reminder to laugh. (laughs) Father, we praise you for your kindness to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 (laughs)